Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Matthew Dodonna. Matthew is a nonfiction book editor at Day Street Books. He's also a writer with bylines in Uproxx, AM New York, Outside Magazine, Fast Company, and more. And he's also the co-host of the Kill Genre NYC series in New York City. Matthew, what's going on, man? Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. Not too bad. Not too bad. I know that you are based in New York City. How's it going? Where are you? Because we're also here. Yeah. Too. So Harper is located on Wall Street or near Wall Street in the financial district. But I live in Prospect Heights of Brooklyn. So right by the Brooklyn Museum and Prospect Park. It's going great. It's a beautiful day here in New York. How important is it for you to be here based in New York City, given that most of the editing and the agent world is here? Yeah, I think it's imperative, especially when you're you're beginning. Much of those first few years are just meeting people, establishing yourself, you know, introducing yourself to other people who are in the field, whether they're writers or editors or agents, reading series, people who run reading series, etc. So I, I think it's really important. I always tell people if you wanted to find a reading in New York, you can find one virtually every night, whether it be in Queens or Manhattan or Brooklyn. So yeah, I think I think you kind of have to be here at least in the in in the early years. You kind of summarize what you did when you first moved here. Can you walk us through exactly the career path and the trajectory you took from whether you moved here and then to where you are now? Yeah, I I was actually a journalism major at Temple University. I went there in 2007 and I was there for 2 years and lo and behold the financial crisis happened in 2008. And I remember my professor it was a big survey class and, and him saying, you know, of 300 people in this room, three of you will have jobs. And oh, wow. that, that didn't scare me as much as, I, as it probably should have. I think I, was, I had been publishing a lot and writing and, and being reporting in the city and that felt great. But I was lucky enough to be introduced to an internship at Penguin around that time. And when I took that internship the summer going to my junior year, it really made me feel great about wanting a little more stability in my career path. And by stability, I mean not that journalism is completely unstable, because I, I do believe you can make a living as a journalist, provided you know a lot of things go right. But there's something nice about being able to work on a book over six months to a year to a year and a half to sometimes two or three years. And with journalism, you're most likely, even long stories, you're probably only working on a story for a month or two. So I enjoyed that that idea of being able to work with a writer over a long period of time. And I basically did back-to-back-to-back internships at Penguin during college, both in editorial for Viking and then marketing publicity internship at Portfolio Sentinel, which is a business and conservative imprint at Penguin. And my senior year of college, I did an internship with a literary agency, knowing nothing really about literary agencies at that time, except uh, you know they were basically what Jerry Maguire is to the sports world for the literary world. 
but basically immersed myself in in different you know areas at that time. And I was lucky enough to get hired right out of college at um, an imprint called Plume, which is part of Penguin still. And I mentioned at the beginning of the episode in your bio, obviously you're a book editor. You're also a writer with bylines at multiple publications and also the co-host of the Kill Genre NYC series. When you look at all those things, how do you kind of view yourself? How do you introduce yourself to someone? And what do you say? <laughs> That's really interesting. I guess it would depend what party I'm at, but no, no, I, I, I think, I think I would introduce myself as a book editor. I, that's how I primarily make my money, right? There's, I do get paid for my writing. I never take a job that doesn't pay, and that's that's a lesson I learned years ago um, from another friend of mine. But the base of my income is is definitely from book editing. So, and that's what I spend most of my time doing. So, I would say a book editor followed by a writer. And the reading series is just something I do because I have a passion for it. And it, it gives me a chance to meet new writers and, and also be immersed in fiction. Because I'm a nonfiction editor, I only publish nonfiction. And the reading series gives me an opportunity just to listen to some fiction, kind of have fun with that. So we normally frame our episodes around different themes, whether comic writer or TV writer. In this case, we've interviewed some book editors. We have never interviewed a nonfiction book editor. So Ooh. I would love to walk through your process kind of like start to finish all the way to getting the book published. My first question, I guess, is what's the main difference for the audience between nonfiction editing and fiction editing? Obviously, we know the difference between the styles, but for you, how does your process differ from a fiction editor? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think the main difference is that when I buy a nonfiction book, I'm buying it based on a proposal. So agents are sending me usually a five or 10 to 50 page proposal. So it's an outline for a book. And I'm buying the book based on that idea or that outline, as opposed to fiction editors who 95% of the time are buying a finished book. They're buying the completed novel. That doesn't mean it's just going to go to press or print as is. I mean, there's so much work to be done, but nonfiction editors are buying books off of promises off of a promise of an idea being delivered and the execution of that idea. And I think for me, what I love so much about that is there's so much wiggle room. So I may buy a proposal, let's say it's based on a true crime event, and the author has an outline of 15 chapters and that he or she wants to write about. I can also take it upon myself to work with that writer to really establish or rework that proposal idea. And I think there, it's, it's a lot more nimble than fiction in that way. I think that's the main difference. I mean, of course, there are, there are lots of others, but that's what comes to mind. And what are your, if you had to summarize, what are your roles and responsibilities as an editor? So it's macro and micro. I think one of, like I said earlier, it's, it's reworking that proposal, but it's also being the voice of the author inside my publishing company. So making sure that sales and marketing and my editorial team and subrights and all these various departments know what the book is about. And it's my job to concisely summarize and pitch the author's book to my team. But on the micro level, it's, it's really working on everything related to the book. It's the line edits, it's the structure, it's the voice and the tone of the book. I probably go through about four or five drafts per 
book I'm working on, and I do about 12 books a year. So you can imagine that's a lot of drafts per year, but hopefully your, your job is getting easier with each subsequent draft. So it's really working with the author on the page, but then being the author's voice for sales and learning how to, to advocate for each book and to know how to properly sell that book. And what makes you different than any other nonfiction book editor? Is there a particular genre you look for? Is there something to bring to what you do? I wish I could say I have this, this amazing specialty that no one else has, but I'm actually, I'm kind of a generalist at Day Street Books. So Day Street's a, a general nonfiction imprint. I do subjects such as sports, pop culture, journalistic, narrative, music, memoir. So I do a little bit of everything. It's probably easier to say what I don't do than what I do. But what I'm really looking for is whether it is a sports book or a pop culture book or a music book, I'm looking for storytelling. So I really do love working with journalists. I love working with people who are already writers and know how to kind of thread a story. But additionally, you know, I work with a lot of celebrities. I work with some military officers. I work with athletes who may not have written. But what I'm looking for them to do is learn how to properly deliver a story with all the, the ups and downs, the hooks, and the surprises. Let's walk through the process of how you mentioned the proposal comes through. I assume that goes through an agent. Does it have to go through an agent? Can writers reach out directly to you? Yeah, I think there's a bit of serendipity involved. I would say a large portion of my list does come from agents, but there are many books I've done in my career that I've concepted. So there was a book I did about hunting, and it was kind of a, a Thoreauian philosophical look at the love and the passion for hunting. And I found a writer online who writes extensively about hunting to do that book. So he wasn't agented. He was someone I reached out to. Similarly, there is a book I did with the World Video Game Hall of Fame, which is a look at the 64 most important artifacts of video game history, which they house in their collection. And so I reached out to them. I set them up with a writer friend. And a year later, they have a book that's beautiful, and I love to show around. So I think it depends, but absolutely, I'm willing to hear from, from any writer who has a good story to tell. As far as the query letter process, what does it look like? Is it similar to the proposal that ultimately is pitched to you from an agent? Yeah, the query is, is a smaller part of the outline, right? So in the outline itself, in the proposal itself, there will be kind of an overview. And that will tell you succinctly in maybe two or three pages what the book is, what it's trying to do, who the audience is. And that's sort of what the query letter is doing. The agents are kind of experts at doing that. They're definitely engineering that. They know exactly what to say and what I want to hear. So in queries, you'll see a lot of comparisons to other books, other writers. If it is a well-treaded topic, an agent may say why this proposal needs to be seen. Maybe it's in a specific genre, but it does something else a little differently that the genre doesn't do. So I usually, I think writers usually defer to the agents to kind of work their magic on those. From your conversations with agents, and I imagine that you have, have you heard them say that there's any secret to the formatting or is there anything that will 100% get someone's query greenlit, so to speak? It's an interesting question. I don't know if there's an exact formula. I would say 
the formula is really solidifying relationships between agents and editors. So for me, if an agent I know and whose work I respect, even if I've passed on their work a lot, there, there are plenty of agents who I haven't bought a book from, but I know that each time they send me something, it's going to be high quality. And I trust that more than the query letter itself, if that makes sense. I know that's sort of like backwards, but <laughs> I'd rather hear from an agent I trust than a kind of a magic line in a query. And I think agents' jobs are to establish good relationships with editors and, and vice versa. How often is it that you hear an idea and you're like, that's it, I have to go with this? Wow. Not often. I think I have passion and admiration for each book I buy, but there's a decision process that comes with every book, right? You're bringing it to your editorial director, your publisher, you're having conversations about it at an editorial meeting. Sometimes a book goes to auction. Other times you're taking a phone call or a meeting and kind of working through some of the questions you may have for an author. But there are quite a few books actually over over my career that I've had that just aha flash, you know, light bulb moment. There was one book in particular that I read the first 50 pages of. Uh, this was a finished book. So we bought it from Canada. So when it came to me in quote unquote proposal form, it was actually a finished book. But I read the first 50 pages and I sent my publisher an email saying, we have to buy this right now. I'll finish this tonight, but this is, this is a must buy. And it turned out to be this book called Lands of Lost Borders by this travel adventure writer, Kate Harris. This book's won a lot of awards, was an indie next pick. Just, it's beautiful. And those kinds of discoveries don't happen often. My agent submits to you a proposal. Where is the book at? Usually with a fiction book, that book should be as close to finished as possible. It sounds like that might not necessarily be the case for nonfiction. It's usually not the case. So we always ask, or agents ask that some sample chapters be included, and that way you can get a sense of the writer's voice, of the tone of the language, right? And it's usually easier because we don't want to go completely blind unless there's a writer whose work has been published online or in magazines and whose work we trust and we know that they're talented. We usually like to have some sort of sense of the writer and the voice of the project. And we also have to remember that a magazine article is, is way different than a book, right? So a person may be a fantastic magazine article writer and can, can write a three, four, five thousand word piece, but how does he or she write a 70,000 word book? And I think that's, that's the question, right? That's the question we're all trying to figure out. Can it work? So we usually like to see some evidence of that on the page. But a lot of my job is also working with the writer on that. And I, and I like to say I try to get my hands dirty as much as possible. And usually writers will never want to see track changes again after, after they go through some, some edits with me. But I think it's hopefully it is making the book better. Are there any other factors that help you decide whether you want to go with a particular book, whether it's a particular celebrity or whether it's a writer who has a particular social media presence, these kind of things? Day Street also is known for doing platform-driven books. So a lot of our authors do have some sort of platform in a way, whether it's they write for a magazine or a newspaper, they have a big social media following, they might be a celebrity in their own right, or a celebrity of their field. So not just famous people, but they maybe they're doctors or psychiatrists, etc. So that does factor in. And the other equation is books that are in the zeitgeist, right? Trends. 
And I hate to say one should base their selection process off trends because trends are they're fleeting. And one moment there may be a trend and next there may not be. But there is a bit of that. And I think, you know, the, ultimately the goal is to make money for the author and for the publisher. So there is a bit of some of that chasing we're doing. But for the most part, I like to just see original ideas. I like, again, you know, there's only so many stories you can tell and so many genres you have. But is there an interesting or nuanced way into the genre? And I think that's what I'm, I'm really interested in. So sometimes it's a person's perspective on a story, or it's, sometimes it's getting the most popular voice on that subject. But it really, it really all depends. You mentioned the trends. What would you say the trends are right now that maybe a writer should maybe avoid because they're, they've been around for a little bit? <laughs> oh, I hate that question. <laughs> I think there has been a trend toward self-help and prescriptive books have been really trending. So you have The Subtle Art by Mark Manson. You have Girl, Wash Your Face. Right? You have a lot of these books that are I would say like self-help for the layperson, right? They're confidence-building books, whether they're from military officials. So that was like Make Your Bed by Admiral McRaven. That was a huge book, right? Or Mark Manson's books. Those have been really trending up. I think that is the main trend right now. But we also have to remember that each country has its own trend. So We'll have meetings with you know people from Switzerland or Japan, and they may have their own ideas of what's working in their markets too. So we're trying to be aware of, of what's going on internationally as well as what's going on domestically. But another trend just across the board is, is audio. Audiobooks are really working now. They're, they've taken off substantially. They've become a bigger part of overall bigger than the ebook market. So, you know, that's something that publishers and authors and agents are really investing their time and energy into. How many authors and projects do you work on at any given time? So I do about 10 to 12 books a year. Those are in various stages and HarperCollins has three different seasons. So when you're buying a book, you're fitting a book into a particular season, be it next year or a couple years down the line. So yeah, I'm probably doing about 12 books. Some are in different stages. So right now, I'm working on three edits at one time. And these are books that are all different kinds of categories. One's a book about Nike and its investigation into the running program. Another book is from an F-16 fighter pilot who's doing a part memoir, part advice on kind of how to become a stronger person and a better advocate for yourself. And another book we just put into production, it's a journalistic memoir. So those are three books I'm editing. But of course, you have other books in different production cycles that I may be finding the cover concept for. I may be working with the author on the catalog copy. They may be going on sale. So we're working with listening marketing on promotions and sales. So, you know, at any given time, I mean, I could be working on 10 different projects. Once you've decided to work on a book, what's your initial relationship with the agent and the authors look like? Do you meet with the author? Do you call them to congratulate them? What's that like? Oh, that's the moment? best part. Yeah. That is that is the best part. I love that. Yeah, it's it's really more it's heartwarming for me. It's heartwarming for the author, for the agent. What I like to do is if they're in New York, we will get coffee or we'll get a drink um, or lunch or something. 
if they're not, I try to get on the phone with them as quickly as possible and just really kind of have a celebrational call. And, you know, so often, I mean, all they're saying is, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so, I'm so looking forward to it. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm saying, thank you, you know, I'm looking forward to it. And it's, it's really kind of, it's awkward in, in the most excitable way. But then I also like to say that each of my authors, they, they all have my cell phone number. They all have my email. They can be in touch whenever they want. Within reason, of course, but I think the more in touch they are with their project over the course of our working relationship together, the better it is. And I really hate to send writers into the dark. I hate to say, hey, go write an 80,000 word book and come back to me in eight, nine months, because that's a lot of work and that's a load of burden they're carrying. And so what I like to do is talk with them each step of the way, make sure that chapter one is working and chapter two is working. And have bi-weekly calls to make sure they're not encountering any stumble blocks. And, you know, the agent is there as much as he or she wants to participate, right? And sometimes it's easy for the agent to guide the writer through some of these things. But I also like to say that I'm happy to do that. When the author starts going through and working on the book and sending you various versions, are they working chapter by chapter with you? Are they working on a whole pass and then sending you that? What does that process look like? They're usually doing chapter by chapter, because as I said earlier, you're buying kind of the idea of the book, right? So you have these chapter outlines. And I want to make sure that if chapter one's not working, there's a good chance that chapter two, three, and four are not working. And it's my job to really get ahead of those issues head on and really early and kind of guide the writer through each chapter. So I would say most books, I'm working on chapter by chapter. And then I'll put it all together and read it in its entirety without a pen. Just read it as I would the first time and kind of note to myself mentally what's going on, what am I liking, what am I not, and then tackling the book again. So it really is, it's a, it's a long, arduous process, but I found that I've had the most success if I, if I do it in piecemeal like that. So would you say that because you're able to get access or involvement into the outline process itself, that gives you a benefit. I know that a lot of times, by the time a fiction book gets to an editor, that outline is long created. Mm. They've already written the whole manuscript, and it's more about, okay, let's reverse engineer what needs to be changed. Do you think that it's a better system for the editor to be involved at the outline stage? I think it is. I, I think it is. The editor may be in the know about some things the writer is not sometimes. The editor may really may know the genre. And as a generalist, it's hard for me to know every single genre frontward and backward but i try to immerse myself in each in the comparative titles as much as i can so i also think the editor sometimes knows how much commercial potential a book may have just based on my relationship to you know to the market so i think we can lend that perspective but ultimately we can't change the book and we can't change the writer in drastic ways. And so that's why we kind of have to be in the know as much as possible. We have to try to try to be pressing as much, much as possible. But I do think it, it lends a really unique perspective. But I also like to say I listen to my authors just as much as they listen to me. And we often disagree about, about some things. And I think that's okay. As long as we're having a conversation about it, one way or the other, we're going to find the right solution for the book. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? 
Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writerexperience for your free audiobook. What's your favorite film of all time? It might be a sophisticated classic, a childhood favorite, or an enjoyable pile of trash you just can't help but watch over and over again. The Pick of the Flicks podcast, hosted by me, Tom Beasley, is all about celebrating people's favorite movies in whatever form they take. Each week, I interview a different guest about their chosen favorite, whether I agree with their choice or think they're as mad as one of Tom Hardy's accents. So tune in to Pick of the Flicks every week on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network and subscribe with your podcast app of choice. Maybe your favourite film will be next. Hi, I'm George. And I'm Sam. And we're from the That's a Classic podcast on the Flickering Myth Network. We both bring three films each from a certain genre and we battle it out to find out which is the ultimate classic. So you can listen to us on Flickr and Myth, iTunes or Spotify. Check out what classic we choose every week. And what do your notes usually look like? Let's say they start on chapter one, they send you a, a version of it, you get it. What form do your notes come in? What do they sound like? What do they look like? <laughs> they, they're they a mix between <laughs> praise and condemnation. <laughs> no, I, I think I do like to insert some exclamation points and and praise in because I think when when authors see my work, I, first of all, I use track changes, so you're going to have these red lines and comment bubbles and all these kinds of things all over the place, and it looks really messy. So sometimes I like to say, "Hey, this is really good. Like, I love this sentence. More of this, you know, things like that." A lot of the other questions, the more critical questions, maybe you know, I didn't, I didn't quite understand this, or this sounds a little, this is redundant, or this is kind of overwritten. This is too drippy. Or just straight cuts, and I, I cut a lot. Uh, I would say, you know, if I have a hundred forty thousand word manuscript that comes in, I I could probably get it down to hundred thousand words very easily. So that's the probably the first thing I'm looking for: excess, just cutting out that fat, and then clarity. I want to make sure that the writing is clear and cogent, and then when it becomes down to maybe the second or third draft, I'm I'm going through the lines and going through each word. And, you know, I may do a control find search on Microsoft Word because I know that the writer has has used the word awestruck too many times. And I'll find that the writers use it 10 times. So I'm cutting out those examples or changing different adjectives or synonyms or verbs. So it's really hands-on. I absolutely love that part about it. And then sometimes if the writer really needs a lot of structural work, I'll compose a letter to go along with the track changes. So in that letter, I will point out to the writer what he or she's doing right, what's possibly not working, and then refer to some examples in the Word document as proof of my criticism. Have you found that when you work with nonfiction writers, whether it's, you know, someone writing an autobiography or, you know, do you find that maybe the wording isn't as flowery as a fiction writer? I think a lot of, it, it depends your background, right? You, if I work with a lot of journalists, the, the writing seems to be pared down. 
it's very economical. I mean, they're, they're taught to really strip out that excess. So sometimes it's getting those people to actually write more poetically, for lack of a better word, to show some more of their hand. So sometimes it's the opposite. Other times you find with memoirists, especially, and they may, may be wonderful writers, but there's a really large degree of ego involved in memoir. It's unavoidable. You're writing about yourself. You're writing about your experiences. So the first thing I'm looking out for is, is likability. And, and I know that's hard to fathom because this is a person's story. How can you not like them, right? But I want to be able to make sure that from page one to when you get to 300, that voice is consistent and it's even and it's fair and that you like hanging out with it. And sometimes it's stripping out that really conscious flowery language that seems a little too overwritten, a little too salient. And let's say they don't quite have an as academic style of writing. How much of that comes in at the copywriting stage? Or is the copywriting stage just, you know, grammar corrections and that kind of thing? The copywriting stage is, is a lifesaver, I really have to admit. They are really working they're really looking out for that stuff, grammar, spelling, syntax, overusage of words, as I said before, flow often. We don't do fact-checking. It's usually the writer's responsibility to hire a fact-checker, but a good copy editor is also a really good fact-checker. So if I did a sports book, which I just did a book with uh, Jerry Rice, the Hall of Famer, he's doing a book about the 100-year celebration of the NFL. I mean, there are thousands of facts and figures and stats in that book. I mean, we're, we're tracing the 100-year history of a sport. So the copywriter was just amazing on that book and saw some things that I didn't see, that the writer didn't see on third or fourth or fifth drafts. Um, and a lot of that is just being too immersed in it, right? It's kind of like that old adage that you hear in elementary school. It's like, have a second set of eyes on your work because you won't see those things that are just kind of unmistakable. So the copy editor in that in that case was amazing. But yeah, I think they, they do a really good job. They, they sometimes go above and beyond just simple grammar and spelling. When you're working with a writer, what can they do to help you? And what are things that maybe when you work with a writer that they maybe shouldn't do? Hmm. They shouldn't. That's a really good question. Now, I, I hope like writers aren't listening to this because I'm like, oh, <laughs> I, I think they're, it's passable to make so many mistakes and it's just natural and part of the process. To help me, I think they should always just be aware of the subject matter they're writing. And we use this fancy term called comparative titles, which basically describes books in that genre or books in that space that your book is aspiring to be or be on the shelf next to. We use this term, but basically, to me, that's, that signals that the writer should also be aware of these books and beware of the market and beware of these conversations that other writers are having about the subject matter that the writer is writing toward. That's a simple thing, you know, knowing who you should share shelf space with, being in conversation with those people, and also a literal conversation. I, I think it helps for writers to meet other people and other writers in that genre, especially when it comes time to, to press time and when those books are printed, you know, those, those other writers can be really real saving graces and help get the word out. So that's, that's something. And then as far as what I can do or what I shouldn't do is I think there's a balancing act between being too overbearing, right? So as much as I want to 
talk to those writers, to puzzle out some of those questions, to find solutions. I don't want to be hovering over them as they write. I think the most important thing is for them to actually get writing done. And so to not be so immersed inside the marketability of the book, especially early on, I really want them to think about the book as its own thing, devoid of sellability and all that stuff. I think that can come later. So just, yeah, really honing in and refining the craft. How do you know when the book is ready to move on to the next phase, whether that's the copywriting phase or, you know, that it's ready to be published? I think a lot of it's instinct, but it's mostly when you can, you're reading a draft and you're not stopping anymore. The first draft is you reading and probably stopping every three words because something's not clicking for you or reading and realize there's a big structural problem. I think a book's done when you can trust that, hey, I'm just reading and I'm having fun with it. And actually, this sounds really, really good. You know, a lot of that stuff, a lot of those little minor mechanical things will be caught by a copy editor. So I'm not going to really worry if if a comma was placed before or after a word. I'm not going to lose sleep over that. But just trusting as a reader, as someone who loves literature, that you can just really plow through and enjoy each second of it. Before we cover promoting the book, We've never really talked about titles. Does a book have a title when it's submitted always? I imagine not. And then at what point is the last ditch? We need a title. And how do you kind of <laughs> help with that? Oh, that's a, that's a hard one. Titles and subtitles are really hard. They're, they're as hard as those questions about covers. <laughs> um, and that's that's a process, man, because you you have one chance to really get it right. Right? There's only one cover. There's only one title. There's only one subtitle. So. I would say most of the time, even in nonfiction, the agent is sending a book with a title. It just helps It helps set it apart. It helps make it a little more official. Sometimes there's a great title already there. And you know, your job is to just make the book better. But other times, yeah, we are involved in that cover process. Usually the agent, the author and I are getting on the phone and just hashing out ideas, really just having kind of like an open brainstorming meeting. And oftentimes it takes weeks to really figure out what that title is, sitting with it, putting it on top of the paper, printing it out, talking about it in conversation, and also getting my, like, I need approval from my, my team, my publisher and editorial director about its title and subtitle. And sometimes they, or even sales, sales has a lot of input in these kinds of things. They'll say, you know, that title is just too wordy, or I'm not sure what it means. And I think buyers are going to glance over it and they're not, they're not sure what the book is saying. So we listen to them in earnest when they, when they come to us with those ideas. What's your involvement when the book is being promoted? What's the author's involvement in that process? Imagine they have to go to various bookstores to sell their book. What are those uh, responsibilities? At that point, have you moved on to other books? I'm still very involved. I would say that's when about two months before a book's on sale, publicity and marketing, are starting to kind of put their cards in, right? They're having conversations with the writer. They're figuring out what kind of contacts the writer knows, what kind of contacts the publicists have, where they think the book might be best suited. So that's that process begins about two months, three months before on sale. And they're hashing out sometimes tour plans, press plans, interview plans, all that kind of stuff. And I'm a little more removed at that point. I I think if a writer's doing events in New York, 
I will accompany them sometimes, or I will go to the book reveal or the book launch party. So, you know, as far as I can, I'm involved. I'm also, but I'm a little more behind the scenes. I'm writing letters to some contacts I have. Maybe there's a person, a friend I have in a magazine or a newspaper or as a producer at a media company. So I'm sort of writing them letters or writing them emails to see if I can get books in their hands. But I'm a little more removed at that time. And, you know, at least until two or three months after the book publication, then it's kind of like, yeah, we're, we're sort of moving on, right? The, the book, we never really put books down. We never <laughs> lay them down to die or anything, but we're sort of moving on to the next campaign. So all that work you put into it, it's kind of, it goes very quickly. And what's the long-term goal for you? What are the tiers of editing that you can then move on to? Do you ever plan to write a nonfiction book yourself? Uh, so yeah, there's, there's definitely a lot of upward mobility. So I'm getting promoted to senior editor in October, which is really exciting. But Congrats. My, yeah, thanks. My goal is to keep moving up, right? And hopefully one day become an editorial director and editor-in-chief. I really want to mentor younger editors. I want to work on the page. I'm less interested in being a publisher one day than I am just being a mentor, an editorial mentor to a lot of people and continue to edit books. That's what I love to do. As far as the writing side, I plan on continuing to publish freelance journalism, but I'm also, I write poetry and fiction. So I'm in the middle of my own novel. I'm like 70 something thousand words in and hoping to finish that draft this year. And yeah, you know, then I'm going to listen to this podcast and try to learn some, <laughs> learn some advice and how to find an agent. And, uh, you know, I'm kind of, I'm at square one at that point. Are you ready for something we call a series of seemingly random questions? Oh, totally. Let's do it. First question, being an editor, you do a lot of reading, a lot of reading, I imagine. Do you ever get tired of reading? Obviously, there's no audiobooks at that stage. You can't just pull it up and listen to it on the train, I imagine. Mm -hmm. As an editor, do you have to just be a fast reader? I'm actually not a fast reader. I'm a, I'm a fairly slow reader. So I don't believe you have to be fast. I, it also helps that I am a nonfiction editor, right? Because I'm not being sent a novel every right, night. I'm being sent right. a proposal. So I can get through I can get through five or six proposals on an, at a night, you know, read 20 pages here, 30 pages there. But I'm not the fastest reader. I do love to read. I read as much as I can. So yeah, but I do get tired for sure. I, I binge watch reality TV, like that, that's a thing. And, you know, there's sometimes I just want to like go to the gym or, or not read. But I, and I also, I don't read when I'm in a sour mood. Like I don't read proposals if I'm sad or upset or frustrated because I feel like I may take that out on the writer or I may take that out on the proposal. So there are times, yeah, you just need a break. And I think that's really important, especially to remind yourself it's a long career. You know, why, why burn out? My next question in the fiction world, a best case scenario might be something like a Harry Potter. What's the best case scenario for a nonfiction book? Wow. I think a Pulitzer National Book Award. I would love to say each book I sign up sells a million copies, but you know that's, that's seldom the case. That hardly happens. So for me, I want my authors to be discovered. I, I think an honor such as the National Book Award would be world-changing. And that's my idea of Harry Potter. 
My next question, you're also a writer. How do you balance both being an editor and also a writer? I think I'm trying every day. <laughs> I, think, I think it's it's just setting limits, setting goals. You know, my personal goal for myself, I found this out a year or maybe a year and a half ago, is I try to write 500 words a day. It's totally attainable for me. It's sometimes sitting down at lunch or after work at a coffee shop, sitting down for an hour, half hour, getting those 500 words done. They could be utter crap. They could be brilliant. It doesn't matter to me, I think. Just getting in the habit of putting down 500 words a day makes the prospect of writing less daunting. Tell us about reading series. You co-host the Kill Genre NYC series in New York City, which is a quarterly reading series flirting dangerously with hybridity curated by yourself, Caroline Haygood and Matt Petronzio. Tell us about your reading series and then tell us about the greater climate of reading series in New York City right now. Yeah, we started this reading series about three years ago. The idea is that we were all, Caroline and Matt are phenomenal poets. I started out as a poet. And the idea with this reading series was to just take different people writing in various genres and mix them together, almost like putting this all-star team together, and but also encouraging the writers to experiment with a different genre that night. So a poet may write fiction, or a fiction writer may do some nonfiction. Nonfiction writer may try some poetry. And we usually have themes for the night. So we've played with the theme of 4th of July. We usually try to host a series around a holiday. And the theme usually naturally occurs within that. And it's been a lot of fun. We usually, yeah, we do it quarterly. We're kind of on a bit of a hiatus now just because we're, we're all so busy, but we're trying to kick back up next year. And we do it at Le Poisson Rouge in the West Village. It's a great, great spot for it. Lots of culture and history there. And it's just, it's been a place where we could have fun and just have some drinks and listen to some great writers and meet some people. And we sometimes have music, which is, which is a different thing than some reading series I've been to. So yeah, that's just, that's been a lot of fun. And as far as the reading series, I mean, gosh, there are so many in New York. There's so many. I love the KGB reading series, the DTUT reading series, Uptown. I love Franklin Park. I, I think it's the best reading series for your money, which is no money because it's free at Franklin Park in Crown Heights. And they have both emerging writers, so people who have published uh, a first novel, and then very established writers. I mean, a few months ago, they had Mary Gateskill there. I mean, just the top of the top writers, and there's no better way to see them, I think. If you could work with any writer, living or dead, which would it be? And if you had to take them out to a lunch, maybe at any fast food restaurant, which would you choose and why? I think I would love to have tacos with Roberto Bolaño. He's one of my favorite writers. I've always loved his style, his, his prose, his ability to write fiction that reads like poetry or write poetry that reads like fiction. I'd say that every book he writes is, is essentially a mystery and kind of captured in a literary form. And I, yeah, I think he's someone I've, I've really looked up to, even as a, even as a nonfiction editor. He's, he's taught me a lot of stuff. So I think Taco Bell with Roberto Blano and just having make fun of the, the Chalupa would be, would be wonderful. If you could choose one learning or insight from your career to pass along to those writers who are listening, what would you say? I think it's trite, but just, just write. And 
try to get off talking about writing and talking about the industry and worrying about who you know. And I think there's a lot of noise on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter, and there's a lot of kind of posing that happens in the scene, the literary scene. And I think young people aspire to meet a lot of people and go to these parties and know these editors. But all of that is lost if you're just not writing your best stuff. And so I would say, you know, set aside time each day to write, not just say you're going to write, but actually do it and allow yourself to write bad stuff. Allow yourself to experiment in different forms, take on different voices. I think that's really important. And what do you tell a friend who maybe talks about writing a lot, but just doesn't put the pen to the paper? Yeah, it's like, it's like an athlete who says, you know, they want to go D1, play D1 basketball, but they don't shoot 100 free throws a day or they don't go to the right. gym, right? It's, so I think there's a bit, you do have to give yourself a break. You can't beat yourself up all the time. And writing is hard. And some days are going to be great. And some days are going to be awful. And some days nothing's going to happen. But I do think it's important to read and write as much as you can. And also to experience things, right? Take trips, go to a strange restaurant you've been passing by each day, talk to someone. You'd be surprised how much you pick up just in everyday conversation. Last question, most important question. Harry, please hand me the envelope. <laughs> I'm opening the envelope right now. Oh, no. All right, I've opened it. And the question is... Did you have fun today? Oh my God, I did. This is, this is <laughs> awesome. That was the easiest question. Love it. We um, always save the easiest for last. Yeah. Um, no, that was, it was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Did you want to plug any upcoming projects? I know you've mentioned some, but is there anything in particular that's coming up? Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll plug one project just because I, I think it's one of my favorites I've ever worked on. It's called You Ought to Do a Story About Me. It's by a Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist, Ted Jackson who describes his assignment in the 90s about the homeless population in New Orleans. He stumbles upon a homeless black man who says, you ought to do a story about me. Ted Jackson inquires why. And the guy says, well, I was in the Super Bowl for three times. And turns out that upon leaving the NFL, the guy became a crack addict and homeless living under the bridge in New Orleans. And Ted strikes this, this bond, this friendship with this man, Jackie Wallace, and the book described their 25-year friendship as Jackie battles sobriety and battles his, his demons. And it's just one of the, it's one of the most heartwarming books I've ever worked on. And I, uh, I really love it. It's coming out next year, I think next June. Thank you, Matthew. Appreciate your insights and your time. Thank you. I had a, had a blast. Appreciate it. And thanks to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.